All right, quick recap. If you're jumping in for the first time with us today, this is week four of a series titled Me and My Big Mouth. Yeah, some of you guys are already on it because the thing that this series isn't, this isn't your mother-in-law and her big mouth. Like this series isn't for anybody else. This isn't the thing that you send to someone else. This is for you. And don't miss that God is speaking to you during this. And I believe that he is because I know that he's been speaking to me during it. During the times of writing and preparation, I know that God has done so much. And, and I know that because as the last weeks have shown, like, like week one, that we need to be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to anger. We all know that, that we all need a little bit more of that. We, we need to slow down our, our initial thought of just speaking our mind and we need to listen a little bit more. The second week, we looked in the book of James as well, where it talked about how the tongue is untamable. It's not something that it's like you work on it once and for, us, for the rest of your life, you've just got it together. But this is a battle. This is a struggle. This is something we need to be conscious of every day, every minute of our life. The words that we choose are so important. Our tongue is not tameable. Last week, we looked in Ephesians 4.29 where the Apostle Paul wrote, Don't let any unwholesome words come out of your mouth, but only that which is good for the building up of others according to their needs. And it made this comparison of our words being like building blocks into someone else's life, that we're supposed to build people up with our words. And then he finished off and said, and a lot of times there, there is bitterness and rage and anger and malice that's taking up occupancy in our words, and it has no place there. We have to get rid of it. Because bitterness, it can be a huge obstacle in using our words for what they're supposed to do. Because our words are meant to, as Ephesians 4.29 says, they're meant to build others up. But a lot of times we just can't get those words out because we haven't received those words. Because other people's words injured us. And so we just don't have the tools, we don't have the knowledge, and we have this hurdle that we have to get over in order to speak encouragement to other people. And until we get rid of that bitterness and that past pain, it's going to make it hard for us to live the way that God has designed and called us to live. And so, so that's something that we have to get over. And today, the message is going to be a little bit out of my norm because we're really going to dive into a story of one person's life because I believe that his example of what he walked through, what he saw about a truth of, of how God was working through his circumstances, I think it's going to be beneficial as we wrap up this series. We're going to be looking at the life of Joseph. And so if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Genesis starting in chapter 37. And before we dive into that passage, kind of as you're finding your place, some of you guys may have heard this story about an NBA player that was about to get signed to a Nike shoe contract. The, the player, he's kind of a B-level player. He wasn't really a big star at this point. And so when he walked in and they had the projection stuff up on the screen of their offer and their pitch to him, and it said Kevin Durant, that was kind of disappointing because his name was not Kevin Durant. All right, And so that, that's, first of all, a misstep for someone who has as much pride as an NBA player. The next misstep was they kept calling him Stephen Curry, which Stephen Curry is incorrect. It's Stephen Curry. And you know when someone has a name that that's, close, that's that close to another name, they're sensitive about it. And, and so Nike is pitching to Stephen Curry, and they continually called him Stephen throughout the pitch. And they never caught their error until he was just kind of done at the end of it. And they, they passed because they weren't paying attention to him. He was just a small fry at this point anyway. It, he got pitched a couple million dollars for a shoe contract with them. 
And, and they let him go, and they went their separate ways. They didn't try to match the offer that he got from another company called Under Armour. A lot has changed since that first opportunity they had to sign him, though, because though they offered him about $4 million, which that would be great, now his relationship with Under Armour is worth about $14 billion, with a B. $14 billion is how much he's worth to the company that signed him. And he, another company had a great chance, but they didn't even know his name. They couldn't even get that straight. And I don't know about you, but I love those stories where it takes a turn, where it's like this person was looked at with a very small amount of importance. They, they were treated with indifference, and then the tables got turned. They're moved to a powerful position, and they have authority, and, and, and the tables just get switched. It's a great moment. It's a moment that you've probably dreamed about if you've ever been insulted or made fun of or been, been made to feel smaller than you are by someone else. You've probably sat back and daydreamed, man, when I get the chance, this is what I'm going to say. This is how I'm going to put them in their place. These are the words that I needed two hours ago. I didn't have them then, but I have them now. And if I get the chance, this is what I'll say to put them in their place. We've all played through that. We've all dreamed about the tables being turned. And in the life of Joseph, we get to see this happen in an extraordinary way. And I think there's a lot that we can learn from it. And as I go through the story, some of you guys, this story will be new and you won't necessarily know what's coming next. Some of you guys will have heard this story so many times that it's hard to look at it and really experience. But this is what I really want to challenge you to do as I get into the text. I want you to really try to sense what would the emotion and the feeling be like to have to walk through this? Because it's crazy some of the stuff that happened. First of all, Joseph, he was from a big family. I mean, he, he had 10 other brothers when he was younger, and then he had another brother that was born later after he was in Egypt. But what happened while he was home, he was the favored son. I mean, when, when you think of, you know, there being 11 brothers running around, 11 sons running around, for one to get picked out of the 10 to be the favorite, you can see how that could get contentious. And it wasn't just like a little bit favorite, it was a lot favorite. And it was because he was the child, the son that was born out of his father's, you know, old age, but it was also because he was born to the father's favorite wife, which, man, this is a good life lesson. Don't have a favorite wife. <laughs> Unless you only have one wife. And you shouldn't have more than one anyway. But, but just a quick side point there for you. Take that um, for, for whatever it's worth. But for the favorite wife, you know, it's a son that was born out of his old age. And so, when we kind of fast forward into this point where the scripture really picks up what's happening, he's about 17 years old. And he's put in this position where his dad gives him extra gifts, extra love, extra affection. And not only that, he's a 17-year-old who's getting sent out to the field to check on 30-year-olds. Now, 30-year-olds in the room, you know, our careers are starting to take off. We're knowing what we're doing a little bit better. Can you imagine a junior in high school walking up to you like he's the CEO and be like, let me see how you're shepherding over here. You guys where you're supposed to be? Like, like, like I, you could sense, like, if a 17-year-old was given authority over you to, uh, you know, go back to your boss, you can sense your blood would begin to boil a little bit. And this is the situation that Joseph was in, and, and I want to be clear that as we begin to look at the life of Joseph and we look at some of his, his example, there is only one Jesus in Scripture. Joseph was not perfect. Joseph is not Jesus, and so his decisions and what he said and when he said it, not always perfect. And Joseph had this God-given dream where he saw his brother and his father bowing down before him. Which when you put that on top of, he's going out to the fields and checking on his brothers, and now he's saying, hey, you guys are going to bow all the way down to the ground 
before me in the future. The tension increased to the point where these other brothers decided, that's it. We're done. We're going to kill him. And I mean, that, we, we say things like that jokingly, but literally, they took him and they threw him in a cistern. They took the special coat that their father had given him and they had made the decision, we're going we're gonna to put him to death. We, we may not actually kill him. We might just let him you know, starve down there because that way we don't get our hands dirty. Maybe we will have to kill him, but he's done. His time is over. We're not going to deal with this anymore. And then while Joseph is in the situation, so, so first, you know, I want, I want to see Joseph's experience. First, imagine, I mean, what it must have been like for the 17-year-old to be stripped and beaten and tossed into a hole to die. Hearing your brothers talk up where you see the light coming through the hole. And, and then, I mean, this is just crazy to me in, in this, this small detail, and they're actually up there and they're eating lunch and, and, and they're talking. And then as they're doing that, you know, you know, throw a brother in the hole, leave him for dead. Let's eat lunch and then we'll go on our way. It's just a normal day, I guess. And, and then in verse 27, Reuben actually suggests and he says, instead of hurting him, let's sell him to the Ishmaelite traders. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. And his brothers agreed. What an amazing flood of compassion. Let's not kill him. Let's just sell him as a slave. And then that way we'll still be rid of him. We'll get a little bit of money on it. We won't get our hands too dirty. I mean, this is a crazy circumstance. And you can just imagine the tears, the, the pain, the emotions that Joseph would have felt as he's going through this. I mean, I can't even imagine the sensation of being taken away, dragged away, and seeing the hills that you're familiar with begin to fade in the distance. The sense of, that is my home, that is my life, that is my family fading away. And I understand a lot of us have walked through some incredibly difficult times. And, you know, it hasn't, it hasn't been this, but we've walked through that time where it's like, my sense of home is disappearing. My sense of home got destroyed. My sense of home is, is lost now. And we've walked through pain. His was so obviously at the hands of certain people. Sometimes it's harder for us to point, but sometimes we can. And we can say, this person, this boss, this this person I thought was a friend broke up our marriage. This person pushed me out of my job. Sometimes we can narrow it down and say, it was this person's fault. And we connect that, that we have this sense of loss. We've lost something because of them. And I want you to see that as we go through Joseph's story, he is a great example of someone who walks through tremendous pain. But we see some incredible truths about who God is as he walks through this pain. Because this next passage is almost, almost kind of a tough, tough pill um, to swallow because what we see next in Genesis 39-2 is it says, the Lord was with Joseph So he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. You see, Joseph was sold as a slave into Potiphar's house. And as he did that, he served and he worked hard. And it, I mean, look at the beginning of the sentence. The Lord was with Joseph. Now you would think that if the Lord was with Joseph, then Joseph would have been the one who was at home with his father and his brothers would have been the ones who got sold into captivity. If the Lord was with Joseph, his life wouldn't be as difficult as it presently is. If the Lord was with Joseph, he wouldn't be referred to as a slave. 
If the Lord was with Joseph, his dreams would have been coming true. His life would have been easy. His meals would have always been hot. His shoes would have always been where he left them if the Lord was with him. That's not what his life was looking like. I mean, is it possible that you could be walking through some of the most difficult seasons of your life, but the Lord is still with you? Because there's this sense that I know that I've felt that when things go wrong, it's like, God, where are you? This can't possibly be what I need to walk through. This shouldn't be something that I experience and feel. This pain should not be part of my process. I mean, sometimes the mistakes that we end up in, they're from our own choices. Sometimes they're from other people's choices. But we still find ourselves in this position where life is rough. And the question bubbles up, God, where are you? And as, as Joseph has been betrayed and he's been sold as a slave into a household, the passage says, the Lord was with Joseph, so he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. Now, this is the theme that we're going to see over and over through Joseph's life, that as he goes through difficult things, we're going to see that the Lord was with him. And if you've struggled with the sense of, God, have you left me? I want, I mean, I don't want, don't read this passage and go over it lightly. He was moved to the position of slave from favored son. He was 17 years old. I don't know what you were doing, through, doing as a 17-year-old. Probably not anything too smart, but you probably weren't stuck in any position like this. When we think of the pains that we went through as a teenager, it probably wasn't as deep as this. And so he's working and he's serving and God is making the things that he, he does fruitful in a terrible situation. And as he's doing this, what happens next in his storyline is that Potiphar's wife begins to look at him and say, he's young, he's kind of cute, he's around the house all day. My husband is gone, I think I might get me some of that. And she, she commands him. I mean, like she says, you're coming with me to bed. And he's a slave. He doesn't get to really, like socially, culturally. That would happen a lot. And he doesn't really get to have an opinion because he is property. But he expresses one anyway. And what he begins to say in verse 9 of chapter 39 chapter 39 verse 9 he says no one here has more authority than I do he being Potiphar the husband has held back nothing from me except you because you are his wife how could I do such a wicked thing it would be a great sin against God now man you just got you, you got to put yourself into Joseph's position and get a glimpse of his heart and his thought process. If anyone had a great excuse to freak out, live wild, and do whatever they wanted because of the past pain that they've walked through, Joseph had a great excuse. Nobody would have known, I'm a slave, she's my master, I have to do what she said. I didn't want to, but she told me to. God gave up on me. He let my brother sell me into slavery. I'm far from home. I'm far from him. I may as well just do what I want. Do what she wants me to do. 
She doesn't even believe in the same God as him. And he speaks to her and says, this would be a great sin against God. I mean, first of all, from the life of Joseph, we see God says, even though you've been sold as a a slave, I'm still with you. Even though you're in pain, I'm still with you. And something turned in Joseph's heart that even though he experienced heartache, he still recognized, God wants me to live a certain way through this circumstance. God still has a calling on his people. My choices still matter, even if the people around me have made terrible, harmful choices. Their choices don't get to determine how I choose to live. And so he says, how could I do this wicked thing? And so what she does, she continues to pursue him. She ends up at one time grabbing his cloak, and rather than, you know, staying there, he got out of it, and he ran. And so she took it and said, this is evidence that Hebrew slave that you brought into this household, he tried to rape me. And so he goes from being favored son to, you know, betrayed by his brother, sold into slavery, serving as a slave in a household. He's had to learn the language. He's had to adapt to their culture. And now he he is accused of being a rapist. And so Potiphar, you know, his wife is saying this, so he has no choice, and he has Joseph thrown into prison. I mean, this is not fair. This is not just. This is not right. I don't deserve to be here. I don't deserve to be talked about that way. I don't deserve to be locked up for this. This is not right. I mean, if anyone had a a reason. But then in verse 21, this theme continues. And it might seem so strange, but it says, But the Lord was with Joseph in the prison and showed him his faithful love. And the Lord made Joseph a favorite with the prison warden. I don't know if I'd want to be a favorite with the prison warden. I mean, I don't want to know the prison warden at all. And it seems so strange to say in the midst of being in prison, the Lord showed him his faithful love. And this is something that a lot of times American Christianity can miss out, that in the midst of suffering, you can learn the most about God's faithful love. In the midst of a situation that you don't deserve to be in, that you got pushed into that because of other people's choices and you shouldn't be hurting like this, that in the midst of that moment, you can learn the most about God's character and the fact that he hasn't left you, that he hasn't forsaken you, that he still has a plan, that he's still good. And in this moment, Joseph, he's now in prison and years have passed and he's in this place and he's almost 30 years old. I mean, he got sold into slavery at 17. He's almost 30 years old now, and he is, it's almost like he turned into the pastor of the prison, apparently, because as he's walking around one morning, he sees someone who looks worried and concerned, and he asks them what I think is kind of a stupid question to ask anyone who's in prison like this. He says, why are you worried? Well, I'm in prison. (laughs) Isn't that enough? Uh, but but he, he says, this is actually Pharaoh's cupbearer, and he says, I had this dream, and I'm disturbed by it, and I don't know what it means. And he obviously felt like there's a meaning to it. And Joseph begins to say, you know, God, God can interpret this. And so he tells him the dream, and, and Joseph interprets it, and he says, what your dream means is in three days, you're going to be restored back to your position of serving right alongside Pharaoh, which is a great interpretation. 
And the chief baker, who also had done something to offend Pharaoh and got thrown into prison at, at the same time, says, hey, that's a really good interpretation. I had a dream too. I think I could use some of that. Why don't you interpret my dream as well? His dream didn't get interpreted as well. Um, because once again, this isn't Joseph's interpretation. This isn't just, you know, sunny side up stuff. This is, this is God's interpretation. He said, in three days, you're going to be put to death. And, and it's descriptive and it's terrifying, but that, that's what the dream meant. But he told the cupbearer, he said, when you're restored, I have been put here unjustly. Remember me. Get me out. And the cupbearer is like, oh, yes, of course. And so three days, it happened just as God told Joseph it would. And I wonder how many days it took Joseph to give up on the cupbearer because two years later, the cupbearer hasn't given Joseph a second thought. Two more years after, after this, this hope. And I don't know if you've ever walked through a tough circumstance and then you see hope that this could be ending and that hope fades. It can be crushing on your heart when you have a glimpse of hope and then it doesn't work out. And so two years go by of thinking, I have a friend by Pharaoh. I can get pardoned. I can get out of here. I can get home. Two years go by, and then Pharaoh has this dream. And no one can give an interpretation of it. And the cupbearer speaks up and says, oh, I forgot about that guy. There was a Hebrew slave that, that was in your prison that he, he could in, he interpret dreams. He interpreted one of mine. He might still be there. He might still be alive. And so they, they went to, to get him. And so we'll pick up in Genesis 41, verse 14. And it says, Pharaoh sent for Joseph at once. And he was quickly brought from the prison. After he shaved and changed his clothes, because he smelled like prison, he went in and stood before Pharaoh. Now this is a pretty crazy turn of events. And, and Joseph has walked through a lot. Joseph's about 30 years old, 13 years 13 years that it's just been terrible. But in the midst of being in these wretched situations, God has been with him. His faith has been built. His character has been changed. I mean, just to briefly overlook, we see in Potiphar's house, he exemplified integrity when he chose not to engage in that act with his wife with Potiphar's wife. In prison, we see that when he saw someone who was hurting and worried, that he addressed it. And in each time, God's faithfulness helped him rise up and serve well in whatever situation he was in, even if it wasn't the situation he wanted to be in. And so these things have developed Joseph's character and trust in God. So then into verse 15, then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream last night. And no one here can tell me what it means. But I have heard that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And then Joseph said something that probably made the cupbearer say, oh, me and my big mouth. Joseph's first response to the Pharaoh, it's beyond my power to do this. There must have been like, because uh, when you recommend someone to Pharaoh, they sure better come through. And so there must have been a pause there. But Joseph, his faith continued to speak and he said, but God can tell you what it means and set you at ease. This is offensive. And, and, and if you're not kind of a student of the biblical times and the culture of what was going on, you have to recognize, since the time Pharaoh was a child, he was taught that he is a God. That he's the God. That he is the supreme one. And so for this Hebrew slave from the prison to walk in 
and say, you can't figure this out, but my God has an answer. This is kind of dancing that line of courage and stupidity. But Joseph, I mean, I don't know. What's Joseph got to lose? You know, he just spent 13 years as a slave and in prison. So Joseph speaks from what he believes, and he says, but God can tell you what it means and set you at ease. And so Joseph begins to explain the dream, and the dream talked about seven years of abundance that they were about to enter into, where there's going to be more grain and more food than they needed in the land. But that seven years, it was going to be followed by seven years of famine, seven years where nothing was producing and everything was difficult. And so Joseph interpreted the dream, but then Joseph took another turn that may not be suggested because your job, Joseph, was to interpret the dream, but then Joseph started giving suggestions to the Pharaoh. And uh, Pharaohs usually don't need Hebrew slaves' opinions too much, um, but, but this is what happened in the text in verse 37. So, so it actually said, so says Joseph's suggestions were well, well received by Pharaoh and his officials. His suggestions were during the years of surplus, take 20% from all of your people. There's going to be so much grain, they won't even care. And so take 20% of it, build silos, and store up. So that way when you get to the seven years of famine, you're going to have all that you need. And so then you take that grain that you taxed, that you took from the people for free, for you, and then sell it back to them. And so they loved that idea. Governments haven't changed much, have they? <laughs> you know, take it from them, sell it back to them. And, and, and so that's what they did for seven years. But so in verse 38, this is an amazing reply that Pharaoh made. He said, so Pharaoh asked his officials, and this was a question that the officials didn't really answer. They didn't need to. He said, can we find anyone else like this man so obviously filled with the Spirit of God? And then in verse 39, then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has revealed the meaning of the dreams to you, clearly no one else is as intelligent or wise as you are. You will be in charge of my court, and all my people will take orders from you. Only I sitting on my throne will have a rank higher than yours. Now, in so much literature, this would be like, you flip the page and then it says the end. Because he went from being betrayed by his family to being a slave to being a prisoner. Now he's like the king of the world. I mean, he, he's second in command, just behind Pharaoh. His life is turned around. He has riches. He'll have a wife. He'll have freedoms. He'll, he'll get to boss people around. It seems like this would be the end. But the fact is, this passage is not about accumulating wealth. And God's design for your life isn't about just giving you a position of prominence and giving you financial freedom. That's not what it's all about. And so the story continues on. And when the famine hits and the things happen just as God said they would, and they had stored all of this grain and they prepared for the famine, all the countries around were, were coming to Egypt to buy grain. And so it affected Joseph's family as well. And, and so Jacob looked at this and, and he said to his other sons, why are you just sitting there? You know, we're going to starve. Go to Egypt and buy grain. So here's the moment. Here's where it happens. Joseph is now the governor. He's the one in charge of selling the grain. And his brothers walk into the room. I mean, could you imagine what your heart and your anxiety would do when you saw the ones who betrayed you? I mean, we, we've dreamed about having that moment where we finally put that person 
in their place. And I'm going to tell you, from my analysis of the text, and as you read it, you'll see, I think Joseph struggled a little bit with what to do, because what he begins to do is he begins to question them. At a point, he accuses them of being spies. He asks them questions about their family. He says, oh, there's another brother. Go back and get them. When they come back, he plants something in their stuff to say that they stole. I mean, I, mean, I think that there's a sense of, of struggle in his interactions with his brothers. But we're going we're gonna to kind of fast forward to where he finally lets God do what God is wanting to do in a situation like this. And band, if you guys want to come back up, I'm going to begin to wrap this thing up. In Genesis chapter 45, verse 1, it says, Joseph could stand it no longer. No longer, There were many people in the room, and he said to his attendants, Out, all of you. So he was alone with his brothers when he told them who he was. He said, I am Joseph, he said to his brothers. Is my father still alive? But his brothers were speechless. Another translation could probably say, and his brothers wet themselves. They were stunned to realize that Joseph was standing there in front of them. I can't imagine the fear that they began to feel. But Joseph's reaction was to say, no, you know, this isn't going to be about vengeance. Go and get everyone. Bring them back. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to provide for you. And they did, and they brought them back, and, and they lived there, and then Joseph's father ended up passing away. His brothers probably felt that Joseph hasn't exacted his revenge because he doesn't want to disappoint dad. Now that dad's passed, I think we're, we're about to get ours. So we better get on top of this and we better go to him and we better grovel. And so what we see in Genesis 50 verses 18 through 19, then his brothers came and threw themselves down before Joseph. Look, we are your slaves, they said. But Joseph replied, Don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many. No, don't be afraid. I will continue to take care of you and your children. So he reassured them by speaking kindly to them. church, you you won't experience the good that can come from the bad unless you live as if God is with you. When you're in those seasons of pain, until you recognize that even even now, even when I don't know how these bills are going to be paid, even when I don't know what's going to happen in my marriage, even when I don't know what's going on in the lives of my kid, in the lives of my spouse, even, even in this crisis moment, I recognize, God, that you can still be with me through this. And when you look at your past and you look at the people that have hurt you and you know those dreams of, oh, I would just love to put them in their place, I think that when we recognize that God is with us, it reminds us of the truth that justice is in his hands. And the whole life of Joseph, it's God beginning to paint this picture of the Redeemer that was to come. I mean, Joseph was betrayed. Joseph went through suffering, and Joseph was able to save the lives of many. And it it was God beginning to show, this is a redeemer. And we see the fullness of the story. We see the fullness that Jesus lived the perfect life. 
that he was betrayed, that he went to death on the cross to pay for our sins, that he was risen to give us new life. And as we looked at last week, the calling that gets placed on our heart is the same thing that we were given. What we have to give is what we've been given, and we are to be kind and compassionate, forgiving others just as in Christ he forgave us. So when it comes to our speech, I know you might have that speech that you've prepared that I'm going to give to that person one day and I'm going to let them have it. How about instead you just let God have that? Because until we deal with the bitterness, until we deal with the pain from the past, we can't experience the peace and the love that God really has for us. And the people that hurt you in the past, when you hold on to that pain, you're hurting the people in your present because they're not getting your best. They're not getting the full you. We need to let those things go. We need to give them to God. So many of us men, we experienced, you know, the hard side of dad, the difficult things. We didn't get the words of affirmation growing up and it hurt us and so it created something in us that we just give that same hard, rough dad to to our kids and we need to heal up in some areas. We need to man up and say, okay, that wasn't the right thing. I understand so many of us have been hurt and they were serious hurts. Look at the life of Joseph. Look at what he walked through. Look at his example. If he can forgive, he was just a man, just a person like me. I can forgive too. We don't want to be presently robbing the people we love the most because we haven't dealt with what happened in our past. So church, this is my encouragement to you. There's old wounds that you would just rather leave buried. It's time to let God time to let God heal that. Because I believe God has something better for you. And what scripture teaches us is that he can make anything work for the good of those who love him anything that has been in that past. He can take it and he can heal it and he can use it for his good when we open ourselves to him. Let's pray. God, we recognize that there has been pain. We recognize that we have been hurt and we recognize that far too often we have just covered it up and tried to mask it. So as you bring it to our head and our heart of things that we need to deal with, we will respond to you. We will say yes. We will leave judgment and vengeance to you and we will show the compassion and the forgiveness that was shown to us on the cross. We know that you never leave us. We know that you never forsake us. We know that you are present. We know that you are here right now speaking to us. So Father, in this place, we give you our heart once again. We say your will, not our will, once again. Once again, we say we are not in your place to judge, but we are in this place to be examples of your love and your life. Thank you for this great invitation. In Jesus' name.